part of our mission here in Jericho Ridge is to extend beyond the walls of the life of this community and make sure that we're having a significant impact in the lives of families and youth in uh, Langley and beyond. And so many of you will know and be familiar with uh, Danny Ferguson. Danny is the area director here uh, for Youth Unlimited, and he and his wife April have been a long time connected here at Jericho Ridge. And uh, Danny's work and his team, uh, they work tirelessly to see that the youth in Langley have the means that they need to live a full life spiritually, emotionally, physically, and in every way. And so I love Danny and love watching him work. On Friday night, we were down at uh, Langley Meadows and watching Danny stand in a gym full of 42 young people from grade 6 to grade 8 or so. And just as he has invested his life in their lives, the respect that they have for him, and then when they have challenges in their lives, they come and find Danny and his team, and they're able to share of the hope uh, that they have. So I have an immense amount of respect for Danny, and he's going to be sharing uh, with us this morning. And so I want to pray for Danny and his ministry as we begin our teaching time together this morning. Would you join me in prayer? God, I thank you uh, that you are calling people to yourself all across this city. I thank you that um, lives that are uh, broken are being healed. Hope is being extended. Reconciliation is being extended through Danny, through the words that he speaks, through his presence in the high school and the team and the volunteers. And Father, we thank you that you have given him incredible authority spiritually in the lives of these young people. And I ask for an increase in that, Father. I ask that you would continue to give him a favor as he works in the schools. I pray that you would continue to, to stir up discernment in his own spirit as he speaks words of encouragement and words of challenge into the lives of young people. And Father, we also open our hearts in this place today to receive words from you as Danny speaks to us this morning, God. We thank you for the way in which he and April live their life and open their home. And we thank you, Father, in the way in which that has led many people to consider the claims of Jesus and the way in which he has called us to live. And so, Father, we pray uh, that you're, you would speak to us this morning, and we thank you for the way in which Danny and his team continue to serve and live. And we commit ourselves to listening hearts and obedience to your spirit in this place this morning. Amen. <clears throat> Sunlight crossed over his face, and he awoke from a sound sleep. His eyelids opened and adapted to the light. He took in his surroundings. The house was still silent. He knew that wouldn't be that way for long before the kids got up and ready for school. So he paused in the silence and he whispered a prayer. I thank you, O oh, living and eternal King, because you've graciously restored my soul to me. Great is your faithfulness. As he pulled his legs over the bed and put his feet on the ice-cold floor, he resisted the evil urge to crawl back into the warm bed, telling the world to shove it. <laughs> In order to embrace his day, he repeated a quote that his father had told him many times. He could still see the grizzled, old, sun-worn face, even though his father was long since passed. He tried to pull up into his mind the gravelly, 
voice of his father as he repeated the words in his mind. Be strong as a leopard, light as an eagle, swift as a deer, and mighty as a lion. Perhaps you're thinking his dad was Muhammad Ali, who said, float like a butterfly and sting like a bee. But as rough as his dad sounded and even looked on the outside, the phrase was not about achieving in sports or in business, but rather in trying to do the will of God. Following God can be as hard and as demanding as any boxing match. And his dad knew it. Now he would try to do the same. So he got up. He thought about what his dad's phrase meant. It meant to be diligent, courageous, pure, and steadfast in his faith. Not to be ashamed if people should mock him for serving God. Mockery happened all the time between the Roman occupation of the land and all the traders that traveled from Asia to Africa. It meant that there are always people milling around and gawking at the Jews as if they were zoo animals. Ah, it was disgusting. He must put his father's words into practice and face the day. He was, leading, he was a leading biblical scholar at the local university, and people were looking to him and relying on him to speak with purity. He got dressed, ate a quick breakfast, and headed to work. After all, part of conquering evil in his life was being prompt. As he arrived at work, there were more people than normal milling around the chapel on campus. It seemed that there was a guest teacher that was coming in to speak with them before classes today. He thought about of all the traveling teachers in his mind. He knew their schedules fairly well, and he wasn't expecting any of them today. So he inquired as who it was, and he was told that it was Jesus of Nazareth. Ah, he said to his colleagues, the teacher. They had heard about him. Uh, he hadn't even been trained as a teacher. His training was in the trades. He was a carpenter from the slums of all places. Why would he choose to come to the university? He was going to get eaten alive. He thought of his morning ritual and the words of his dad still ringing in his head. And he thought the best way to be a mighty lion in this context would be to test Jesus on some of the basics of faith before he would listen to a single word that that guy had to say. As the chapel started to fill, he he could see the look of discomfort in the eyes of his colleagues. Apparently, he was not the only one feeling that way this morning. The announcements were made and the typical morning prayers were uttered and he gave an extra exuberant when the chapel leader prayed for truth. Then Jesus was introduced, but before he could start in on his message, our friend stood up. He looked Jesus right in the eye and he asked a question to test him. Are you wondering what he said? To find out the answer to that, I want you to pick up your Bible or your digital device. Find your way to Luke 10. It's important that you look at this stuff so that you know I'm not making it up. As you're looking it up, think about this. How do you know? How do you really know that Jesus, some dude that may or may not have lived 2,000 years ago, knows anything about how to help you in your life? How do you know that his words were relevant then? Or if they're relevant now? 
I think many of us, if we had the same chance as the dude in this story, may do the same thing. In fact, maybe many of you already have. In the times when you've been going through a particularly difficult struggle, you've lain in bed, stared at the ceiling, and you ask God questions to test whether or not He cares. I know for me, this year when my dad died in January and my mom was diagnosed with cancer in June, I asked God some hard questions. So, anyway, back to my story. Luke 10, starting at verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law, that was the main man of our story, stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Let's park here a second. This was a smart guy. He was an expert in biblical law. Some translations call him a lawyer. In my story, I called him a university professor. In other words, he knew the Bible better than us. He didn't just study it. He lived it and breathed it. He had given his life for it, and he held it in high regard. He was a passionate man when it came to the scriptures, and he wasn't going to let some podunk hillbilly come in and teach a bunch of stuff that might make the people feel good, but wasn't soaked in the truth of the words of the book. Hey, I'm a guest speaker here this morning. Maybe you're thinking the same thing about me. What does this guy know about the Bible? I mean, I heard he's an American. (laughs) We all know about American Christians. He's probably going to use the opportunity on stage to promote patriotism. Talk about the right to bear arms or the evils of Obamacare. (laughs) If not, not, he probably has some sort of political agenda against same-sex marriage or abortion or why it's okay to drop bombs on the infidels in the Middle East. Will he actually be faithful to the words of the book? Or does everything he say have to be taken with a grain of salt? Maybe you could think of a few questions to ask me to see if my theology is in line with yours. I'm not so sure that's a bad thing. Is it? Whether you've been at church your whole life or this is the first time stepping through the doors, I think it's common sense that you, that you just don't blindly accept something that someone from a t- stage tells you to do. Otherwise, we'd all have a lot more kitchen appliances. The expert question was this. What must I do to inherit eternal life? The man here was looking for a specific answer, and the emphasis was on the word do. Circle that word do in your Bible. If the Bible is a life textbook for you, why wouldn't you want to take notes? You don't want to keep learning the same things over and over and over, right? What do you have to do to live forever? What do you have to do to make God happy? What do you want from me, God? I think it's a question that most people ask at some point in their life or another. Now, not everyone reaches the same conclusion to that question. Some people say all roads eventually end up to the same destination. For instance, I can believe in the force, and I can believe I will live forever as a floating, translucent, hologram-type existence right next to Obi-Wan, and Yoda, and Anakin. 
And uh, of course, that's ridiculous because you can't base your life on the things that come out of George Lucas's head. <laughs> but that was the essential crux to this question. Is Jesus preaching Star Wars or is he teaching truth? If Jesus says anything besides the words the expert is looking for, he will know that Jesus is a false teacher and they won't have to listen to another word. In fact, they could probably take him down to the hockey arena outside their banquet hall, tie him to the net, and practice their slap shots on him. At least that's what we do with false teachers here at Jericho. (laughs) It's no wonder I hate hockey so much. (laughs) So let's look at how Jesus answers this question. So verse 26, if you're following along. It says, what's written in the law? Jesus replied, how do you read it? Our expert friend answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. So what just happened here? Did Jesus not know the answer to the question? They had to ask the expert? I doubt that. Because at another time, Jesus asks that same question. He gives the same answer that the expert gave himself. It's recorded in Matthew twenty-two thirty-four. if you want to check it out. This statement comes from two separate Old Testament passages. The first is from Deuteronomy 6, 5, which was something that every Jewish male would recite every day, called the Shema. When I went to Bible college, we were taught how to speak it in Hebrew. Shayam Yisrael Adonai Elohinu Adonai Echad. I never thought I'd have a chance to apply that in my real life. (laughs) Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your might. The second part of the phrase comes from a book called Leviticus, which was a book of priestly and lifestyle law. So it comes from Leviticus 19.18, and here it is in its entirety. It says, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. If you want to boil down what it is that God is trying to say in the Old Testament, it's this. Love God, love others. Jesus confirmed that the expert answered correctly, and you would think that that would have been enough. But the next verse says, but he, being their expert friend, wanted to justify himself And so he asked a follow-up question. What was it that made this expert feel as though Jesus wasn't pleased with his answer? Even though he had answered correctly. Look at Jesus' response one more time. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. And again, the emphasis is on the word do. We miss, what we miss in not being able to read the original Greek is that the word the expert used for do in his question meant a one-time action. What do I have to do? What's the answer? In Jesus' reply, the word do indicates a continual process. In other words, always be doing these things. Problem is, we can't do it. We can't continually maintain these commands. And this guy knows it. I may get it right every once in a while, but my love for God is sometimes half-hearted, and, I, and I, my love for others fluctuates on a moment-to-moment basis, especially when I'm driving. 
This is why I've never put one of those Jesus fish on my car. (laughs) Jesus actually acknowledges that if you can maintain these two laws to their extremes that you'll live, but you make even one mistake, and we've all made at least one, and what happens? You try to justify yourself. It didn't hurt anyone. Well, it doesn't really apply to me. Well, it was technically legal. Given enough time, I can talk the evil out of all of my activities. If you're trying to figure out eternal life, it's important that you get this straight, get it sorted out. You don't want to head into the afterlife thinking that you've got a ticket to get into heaven because you know the right answers or are basically a good person. At another time, Jesus told more of these experts saying, you diligently study the scriptures, thinking that through them you'll have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. If you want to get into heaven, it's the same principle as trying to get a job. It's not what you know, it's who you know. Maybe you're thinking, is he really going to judge a guy for shoplifting in the same way as a murderous dictator? It just doesn't make sense. There has to be exceptions, justifications, or loopholes, or else what's the point in even trying? In my Bible, I underline the words justify himself right there in the middle of this story. And I wrote a note to myself saying, how do I try to justify the things that I suck at doing? The thing is, when we face judgment by God, it won't be a process of comparing how good or bad we are in comparison to other people. It won't be like some sort of flowchart between Hitler and Mother Teresa and where I fit in on there. No. It will be a comparison to God himself. And if you're not as perfect as God, you may run into some problems. Unless, of course, you can find a way to convince God that your particular misgivings were technically justifiable according to his own rule book. And that's why this expert asks a very loaded theological question. In verse 29, as he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Why would he even ask this question? How is this even a justification of the first question about trying to gain eternal life? Let's look back at that verse in Leviticus. Leviticus 19.18 says, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. What does the expert see in this verse? Notice the words, anyone among your people. I didn't put it up on the screen, so maybe you have to write it down on your hand or something. The words, anyone among your people. This command to love your neighbor as yourself is technically a command to love a certain people group. Love other Jews as you would love yourself. Love other Christians as you would love yourself. If Jesus negates the law in his answer about loving others as anyone among your people by including people outside of that community, he is in a sense saying that the law is wrong or tainted. And this expert won't have to listen to anything he has to say. If Jesus confirms the law is loving neighbors, is intended for those inside the community only, then there's room for justification. 
and Jesus' message about loving enemies and all the talk about including Gentiles and all these other people and the, the things that they would have heard Jesus talking about in other contexts would have been seen as heresy, a contradiction in his message, and hence they wouldn't have to listen to him. We all love to find contradictions. It can help us prove our unbelief. It can help show us places where the rules don't apply to us. Then we can pick and choose which rules we'll follow and which ones we won't. For instance, the Bible is pretty clear and it says not to get tattoo marks on your body, which many Christians will nod and smile about while they ignore the line a few verses away about not cutting the hair on the sides of your head and not to trim the edges of your beard. The conclusion, obviously, is that you can't be clean-shaven and criticize tattoos. The expert has just put Jesus into an impossible position. Checkmate. The debate is over. What does Jesus do? He stops debating and tells a story. Here it is. In reply, Jesus said, A man was going from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. When he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place, saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put a man on his own donkey, took him to the inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins, gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. If you read through the story on the surface level, you'll walk away with the idea, if I see someone in trouble, I should help them. In other words... You should be a good Samaritan. Do a Google search for good Samaritan and you'll be inundated with hospitals, Christian ministries, laws, all based on this moral teaching. And those aren't bad things. You should do those things. But based on how this story is introduced, I'm not actually sure that is the right conclusion. Okay. So if we pause and reflect on the story a bit more, dig a little deeper, we find out that the Samaritans were hated enemies of the Jews. They would have never used the words good and Samaritan in the same sentence, unless it was, the only good Samaritan is a dead Samaritan. Many sermons have been preached about this concept, but all you really need to know is that Israel and Samaria were about as friendly to each other as Israel and Palestine are today. Some people have uh, come to the conclusion that the moral of Jesus' story then is that I need to recognize that the hated people in my life are neighbors. And if I can't do that, there may be a time and place when I'll be the one laying on the road left for dead. Sounds pretty good, right? It's a good karma teaching. If you do good things, you get good things. Now, again, being nice and paying it forward and loving others even though they don't love you are not bad things. But I don't think it would be an adequate response in this conversation that he's having with the expert. If you want to stop at one of these two points, that's fine. 
If you want to be a good moral person to show that you're not an animal, that you care about humanity, and you're even willing to give Jesus some of the credit for that, all the more power to you. You can pack up your stuff right now, go grab your kids and go home. But if you really want to find out what Jesus was saying here and are willing to have him shake up your life, then stay what I hear to believe the critical mass of this story. So if you claim to be a Christian, you shouldn't be moving right now. Because uh, you're identifying yourself as a believer, you've said that Jesus is boss. The ultimate example of how to live this life and the one that you want to be like more than any other. Okay? And if you're not a believer, you should stay so you can find out, if you want to say no, what exactly you're turning down. Or if at the very least, you can find out what the Christians should be doing and then mock them for it when they're not doing it. Have you made your decision then? Because I'm not going to give any more warnings. The true ethic behind this story is not what I have to do to save myself or what rules I have to do to live by to make it into heaven, but rather having a worldview that is more focused on others than it is on ourselves. That we act not because we are told to, not because we are supposed to, or to be considered good people, but we are actually centered on others as opposed to being centered on ourselves how to love them, how to care for them, regardless of the cost or the benefit for ourselves. That is the way of Jesus' kingdom. Let me explain. Verse 36. Jesus continues, Which of these do you think was a good neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Notice that our friend can't bring himself to even mutter the word Samaritan in a way that would give him any credit. The fact that Jesus would use a non-believer as the hero of the story would have been troubling. Here's why. A priest and a Levite both passed by the man. We may balk at that We may point fingers at the callous, uncaring idiots that wouldn't stop to help a dying man, but before you do that, how many of you have ever, ever passed by someone in need? Do you stop at every single intersection in Vancouver and give out money and buy meals for those that are hurting? Do you give money to every charity that parks itself outside Walmart? or calls you during dinner? I bet you can even legitimately justify your actions why you don't. What if the homeless guy said, like, he needs, says he needs the money for food, but actually buys beer? I don't want to enable his addiction. What if this charity on the phone is nothing more than a scam? I don't want to get suckered. What if the hitchhiker is really just trying to get someone to pull over so he and his buddies can knock me out and take my car? I will just pray for them. If you don't know what I'm talking about right now, then you're lying to yourself. If you care to do so sometimes, read Leviticus 21. In there, you'll find out that the priest in our story wasn't necessarily a jerk at all. 
In fact, he may have had to resist the urge to help the guy by going to the other side of the road. As a priest, he was not supposed to touch anything dead or it would disqualify him to serve at the temple. He would have to disobey the law in order to help. Just like it is illegal to pick up hitchhikers in our day and age. If you do a stranger a favor, you could be fined. The Levite, too, has to pass by. And perhaps he has similar rules, or perhaps he was just like you and I, concerned about the what-ifs. What if this guy is just bait for the robbers? Well, I'm bent over him trying to help him. They're going to come and sucker me. Two for the price of one. I can't help him myself, but I can go get the authorities. I can pray. But in Jewish tradition, actually, if they become unclean, such as touching something dead, they weren't allowed to pray because the words wouldn't be pure enough to talk to God. In touching the man, he could do less to help and put himself into danger. Then came the Samaritan. Look for the word good Samaritan in the story. It's not there. He could have been a drunk. He could have cheated on his taxes. He could have abused his wife and kids. We don't know anything about this guy other than what happens in this moment. What we do know is that one of the reasons the Jews hated the Samaritans so much is that they didn't follow the ways of God. Yet he's the one that gets down and dirty, takes a risk, his inconvenience, gives up his ride, his time, and his money to help the guy. Often in our time, Christians are known more for what they are against than what they are for. Just much like the priest and the Levite in our story. So which one was the neighbor? It was the one that didn't have the right answers. It was the one that wasn't looking for loopholes. It was the one that would have never thought to ask the theological question, but who is my neighbor? Put in more modern language, it was the non-Christian that acted more Christian than the Christians. In terms of the question about the law, Jesus isn't negating the law. He's showing the expert its ultimate fulfillment as shown through a person who wasn't following the letter of the law at all because it didn't even apply to him. However, the Samaritan was filling the spirit of the law in all its fullness. It would be like one of you Canadians asking to pay U.S. income taxes. That makes no sense whatsoever. It's ridiculous. In being told by Jesus to go and do likewise, you run into the problem of having to give up the things that we think we know. We have to give up the right answers. He isn't showing us what to do, but rather who to be. If you're here today as someone interested in trying to sort out the questions about life after death or why the life you have right now feels like death, then I hope you can see that Jesus isn't just interested in the do's and don'ts, but about how to give you a second chance at the life you've always wanted. He has a different way of looking at things. And take it from me, it's worth considering what it means to follow him. We would love to walk with you here on that journey. I would love to introduce you to my friend Jesus. If you're here today as someone that's already decided to follow Jesus, 
but you're justifying your addictions, your negative attitudes, or your apathy with all the right answers, I'd like to challenge you with these words. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will make your path straight. In other words, if you're trying to figure out what it is that God wants you to do, then the odds are that you already know what he wants you to do, but you're just ignoring him or you're justifying why you don't have to do it. Isn't it interesting? There are a great many people out there that want to follow the example of the Good Samaritan, who is a fictional paragraph in a paragraph-long story, but so few people want to follow the example of Jesus. Let me tell you, it's much easier to follow the rules of Christianity or Judaism or even karma, than it is to follow Jesus. But just like John F. Kennedy said in his speech about going to the moon and climbing the highest mountains, why would we do such a thing? We don't do it because it's easy. We do it because it's hard. History remembers those people and forgets the rest. It's better to follow... You think it's better to follow the guy in our story, the Good Samaritan, or the guy telling the story? I think you already know the answer to that. So how do we know how to follow Jesus? How can such a simple question have such complex answers? Number one, be a part of a community that can help you grow and mature in your faith. Remember, we gather here on Sunday mornings to celebrate the fact that because of the work of Jesus, we don't have to gather in a specific place every week in order to make God happy and have eternal life. We may be here at, uh, so you may be growing here at Sunday morning service. It may be at a life group. It may be at another church. It doesn't matter where that community is as long as you have a place that feels like home. If you're not sure where to start, you can come talk with me or anyone that's on leadership here, the person next to you, and we'd love to help you find a place for you. Number two, learn as much as you can. Remember, as we study the scriptures to find the heart of God and put them into practice in our lives because Jesus made it possible that we didn't just have to follow the rules of scripture in order to be saved. Join a Bible study. Listen to a podcast. Take a class at the Bible College. Anything that can help stretch your mind and help you to take the next steps in your spiritual journey. Don't just let that knowledge overshadow the person of Jesus. Number three. This work, it's hard. Practice the attributes you want to have in your life. Remember, we put our faith into action and apply the things we are learning in response to the fact that because of Jesus, we don't have to act in certain ways to earn our way to heaven. But discipline to act requires practice. I actually saw an amazing example of this when I was watching the movie The Butler this summer. In this film, we're introduced to a young black man named Louis Gaines who moves into a volatile area of the South at the beginning of the Civil Rights Movement. 
He was drawn to this particular area because he had heard of the Love School, which is an underground movement to help fight black segregation through employing the love ethic of Gandhi. While at the meeting, an animated and passionate speaker talks of assembling an army, an army with one weapon, and that weapon is love. As he talks, a young lady in the crowd objects to this in, uh, in saying, but if our weapon is love and their weapons are actual real weapons, isn't that dangerous? And the, without hesitation, the speaker says, oh, you can die. You can be killed for this. If you're not ready to sacrifice your life for this, then you're not ready to join the fight. It's going to cost. It's provocative, but it's true. Then they intersperse scenes of these young students role-playing in the simple act of going to sit in a white-only section of a local diner with, with scenes of them actually marching in and doing that very thing to play out what they had practiced. Sitting in a nonviolent demonstration just to be served as equals, which the law stated should happen, but was not being enforced. This was not a random demonstration. It was well organized, thought through, and required the basic skills of patience in the midst of unfathomable adversity and pressure to cave. It required persistence to remain when they were being yelled at, spit on, and having seething, hateful things breathe down their necks and spit into their faces. It required discipline not to lash out in self-defense or violence when they were hit, disrespected, and physically harmed, all of which they practiced in their role play. Friends, if only we had such faith to see the world changed. If only we used our gatherings not only to, to learn about spiritual truths, but to put them into practice. If only we learned how to practically resist the injustices of our world through peace message of Jesus. And if we did not fear breaking the rules in order to move in faith. We may be arrested or harmed or even killed. Hey, isn't that exactly what happened to Jesus? Why should we expect any better for us? If we're not willing to die for our cause, then maybe we're not ready to be a part of it. If we practice doing the small things, we'll find in time that when Jesus calls us to do the big things, we won't have to justify or clarify. We'll just act. Isn't he the one that said you're blessed when people persecute you and insult you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, rejoice and be glad for in the same way they treated the prophets who were before you. If that's the case, I don't think I'm getting very many blessings in my own life. I work hard so people will like me. Isn't that what this story is all about? Are you in? I'm going to invite the, the band come up here.
And I just want to pray a prayer of response. And so often, so often when we ask for response, it's just quietly in your chair or to yourself. But I want to challenge you today that if you really want to change, if you really want to have Jesus be that role model in your life, if you really want to have the faith of a good Samaritan, then don't worry about what other people think. Don't worry about what the person next to you might say to you after you leave. Don't worry about your reputation. Don't worry about comparing yourself to others. Worry about the comparison to God. And I feel like he's calling people in this church to act and be more and do more. So as the band plays, a song about just inviting more of Jesus into our life. If this is something you want more of in your life, I invite you to stand. Whether it's the start of a journey or one that's just gotten off track. And those around the people that stand, pray for them. Hold them up. You can't do this alone. I can't do it alone. I suck. But together, we're his body. And we can change the world. And Jesus, I just lift up my friends here.